Welcome to the Scary Serengeti. We're your host, David Swinger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about cybersecurity and technology news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical applications that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are, are hours and hours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Did you hear that the Alpha V slash Black Cat ransomware game just announced its latest affiliate? I didn't yes, know they see. announced those. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> they put out press releases and everything. <laughs> also, I was just thinking that wouldn't it be really annoying if sometimes we talked really slowly and then other times talked really fast so that people that set the, their, their podcast to listen at times two speed. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I listened to everything at double speed and I have actually listened to uh, podcast where I'm not sure it's at double speed because it is so slow. <laughs> like, yeah. man, if, if this is double speed, I can't imagine listening to this in regular time. You're not wrong. Every time so I switched to a new podcast listener and it was on normal speed and they were so slow, I couldn't believe it. You almost have to, but then you get somewhere that people get excited and they talk faster and then you're listening it fast and you're like, oh my God, I have to slow this down. This is too much. Oh, no. About the only time I, I generally have to do that is with accents. You know, if there's a thick, you know, Australian or New Zealand accent, Brit to some degree, but generally I, everything is fine except for that. But right. uh, before we start, I, I do want to add one quick thing in here. Before we, we put together the articles we want to talk about back on Wednesday, and we missed one that was announced between when we started talking about the articles and when we did this. If you're using Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, apparently you can now do deception as part of your EDR. You can add decept fake accounts and fake hosts and leave, a, you were right, David, lures are documents, batch files, and more. So we've, we've talked about deception a little bit in the past, but the main component that makes it hard to do deception is doing it at scale, pushing it out across the environment putting those honey, uh, honey badger. <laughs> <Putting> those, <laughs> those... You only keep your honey badgers in the data center, <laughs> in the man trap. <laughs> putting those, putting those, why can't I not think of, and it's not honey pot. What's the word for the accounts? Honey something. Honey, well, you have honey tokens. Honey tokens. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Like putting the accounts uh, and stuff and then triggering the alerts on them. And that's now all built into Microsoft for Defender for Endpoint. So. Random, cool, but now we can proceed to our actual planned content. All right, and the first article is Ransomware Gang Files SEC Complaint Over Victim's Undisclosed Breach. And this comes to us from Bleeping Computer. So the Black Cat Ransomware Gang has filed a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission complaint against one of their victims for not complying with the four-day rule to disclose a cyber attack. Just so good. <laughs> it's just... This is something you can't make up. Uh, so Black Cat listed on their website that the software company Meridian Link had their data stolen. And unless they unless they paid, and they were going to leak it unless they, they paid within 24 hours. Hmm. Now, according to databreaches.net, the gang said they breached Meridian on the 7th of November and sold the company's data but did not encrypt any systems. Good for them. It's a kinder, gentler black cat. <laughs> That's, yeah. So when Meridian found out that this had happened, they, they contacted Black Cat, but they hadn't paid yet. So Black Cat thought they would pressure Meridian Link by filing this complaint with the SEC about the fact that Meridian failed to disclose the incident within the four-day required window. And on the Black Cat's website, they published screenshots of the form they filled out at SEC's tips, complaints, and referrals page. But apparently they weren't well-versed in the actual requirement because while this new rule had been created by the SEC, it did not does not actually come into effect until the 15th of December. So they're a month early before this would even be relevant for affecting Meridian Link. I got too excited. Yep. They didn't read the fine print. Most people don't, myself included. <laughs> well, I mean, that's going to come around and bite you in the ass when you're talking about SEC and other regulators. You don't read the fine print. You could get in real big trouble. 
well, I guess ransomware gangs aren't, aren't really concerned with that too much. They should be. But the bleeding computer contacted Meridian Link, and Meridian uh, Link said, quote, based on our investigation to date, we have identified no evidence of unauthorized access to our production platforms, and the incident has caused minimal business interruption. Uh, so Meridian Link's, you know, blowing off the whole thing, saying, blah, this yeah. didn't even happen anyway. Which is what they would always say, regardless if it was truth or not. Companies lie. They're not. They have no morals. No. Come on now. Now, this fellow, Brett Callow, who's a threat analyst at the security firm MCSoft, says that the Maze ransomware gang claimed that they were going to do the same thing in the past, but there's no evidence that they followed through on it. And he also thinks that this is this would have the opposite intended effect because executives would be would not want to pay the the blackmailer because they would always hold it over their heads in the future at any point they could rat them out to the SEC. That actually sounds kind of like what happened to the the CISO at Uber, right? Like the didn't the incident they covered up happen years before they found out? Yeah, but it didn't, they didn't, it wasn't found out. If I recall correctly, it was not found out because the, the two hackers that were involved in that ratted on them though. Uh, okay. Because they failed to uh, provide additional extortion or extortion or tried to extort them again. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, no, I would agree with this analyst. I think that now that, now that companies know that the hackers may go directly to them, it's, it's all, all going to convince them more like we need to. Make sure we abide by this now and soon. Right. Because the thing that I think the 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 wrinkle there is that, um, they, sure, the ransomware attack could be devastating and may put them out of business, but there's no certainty in that. But a government regulator will absolutely put them <laughs> out of business. Yeah. Maybe we got the joke the other way around. Maybe the ALF, the rant, Black Cat is an affiliate of SEC. Maybe SEC <laughs> paid them. They were like, hey, why don't you go? Well, that wouldn't surprise me. SEC is a criminal organization. But the reason that uh, Matt and I find this so amusing is we're getting to the point now where there's where ransomware gangs have at least five different ways to start extorting people. You know, they have to pay the ransom to get the data back, pay to prevent the data from being leaked, pay not to tell your customers, have the customers pay, and now pay not to tell the SEC. So I'm trying to figure out what's coming next. We should be able to predict this, right? Like, is it pay not to put it in a time capsule? Is it pay not to give it out to a psychic organization? I don't... We, we will, actually we will continue to block it from remote viewing. It's funny, actually. Dave and I tried to seriously come up with... We threw a couple back and forth, but I don't... How many other ways can you get them to pay for this information? Well, if there is another way, they will find it. So we just have to wait for them to be innovative and come up with another method. What about what about pay not to release fake information? Well, they could extort anybody with that. I don't think that would. Yeah. I well, no, I'm thinking. I'm thinking because you because right now a lot of this when the information is revealed, there's the usual kind of sliminess that we expect out of companies. But what if they inserted like some really actual something like real unpleasant in there or something like evidence of crimes that would get them investigated by the SEC or something like that. Oh, well, I actually just thought of two ideas. One of them is not mine. The first one being, which is not mine, that rather than take data, they could put data, which is child pornography throughout the entire enterprise. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking of, like something illegal, but I didn't, I didn't specifically tweak on that. The other idea I'm thinking is extort executives directly based on what they find in the data. Mm, where you can find evidence if they did something specifically harmful to the organization, be like, if you pay me $100,000, you don't lose your $300,000 a year job. Well, I was thinking more along the lines of kind of like in Mr. Robot, where all the executives had decided that they were going to dump that toxic waste. You know, so the ransomware gangs finds these internal meetings of some uh, something that took place where the company deliberately is going to do something heinous, not necessarily any particular executive, but they could, if a particular executives were imp implicated in that correspondence, they could do that. You know, kind of like the, when the Sony breach happened, there are all those emails that came out where 
Sony executives were bad mouthing celebrities and things like that. Maybe they <laughs> could they could extort executives for certain content of the data they extracted. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot um, of sense, actually. That's probably the next one. But as we said before, we're not. There's, there's so many people getting advice on ransomware. And we're not. We're going to get into that. But just to say that, you know, just like any blackmail scheme, it's better to pay not to not to ever pay and get it over with, because once you pay, then it's an ever you know, it's a never-ending gobstopper for the blackmailer to keep coming back to that well. It's never you pay once. They're like, oh well, now you pay me again, or I'm gonna I'm gonna blackmail you some more. Yeah, especially um, like you just mentioned with the uh, the executives. Now you can just get them every year. Just hit them up for your protection money. Yeah, your Christmas bonus. Yeah. But whatever you're going to do, make sure you have that plan up front. Because I think it's regardless of whether you decide to pay, not pay, whatever. I think it's important for you to have that plan ready. Because I think the faster you act, regardless of what your decision is, the better off you and your company are going to be in getting this the ransomware situation resolved. So our second article today is a simple SOAR adoption maturity model from Anton Chivakin, which we're doing two articles from Anton. He's uh, hitting on all cylinders right now. He's developed maturity models for SOC, SIM, and vulnerability management in the past, and now he has one for SOAR. It's amazing. The maturity is measured on the following dimensions. One is typical customizations, and that ranges from the maturity level one is out-of-the-box playbooks to fully mature as complex custom playbooks. Second row is typical actions and responses, starts first at notifications, ends at acting automatically at scale, which is a phrase to strike fear in every C-level's heart. <laughs> yeah, they see enterprise destruction at, at scale when they hear that. <laughs> Third row is typical playbook types, starts off with enrichment playbooks. And then all the way fully mature is automatically mitigating and resolving incidents. Typical metrics starts with no formal metrics, ends with automated metrics at scale. Next line is automation coverage ranges from 0% to 90 plus percent because you'll probably never get to 100%. You can't automate everything. Frankly, 90% I think is pie in the sky. And then the bottom was the typical related security processes. This was basically around the maturity of the development and integration processes. For example, using out-of-the-box integrations at the most immature level. And then when you're fully mature, you're writing custom integrations for your own internal tools. So there's actually not that much to discuss here. I saw it and I thought it was cool, but when I read it over, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty straightforward and I generally agree with most of it. I debated removing it for another article. And honestly, if I had seen that the Microsoft Defender for Endpoint one beforehand, if I'd seen that with enough time, I would have ripped and replaced this. Um, yeah, there well, are... Mm -hmm. The one thing I would say about it is that it is pretty straightforward, but all, it's also very, I don't know, squishy, if you will, uh, yeah. because there's no clear, hey, we've reached level three. You're going to say it's all going to be, we think we're at level three based on this and this. There's, there's nothing where you're going to say, yeah, we're certain we've reached this maturity level to be able to rate yourself anyway. And I guess since you're not really talking about regulation or anything, maybe that's not such a big deal. But I think some of this is, like, it's, like I said, it's, it, it'll be difficult to get a good handle on where you're at, I think. Yeah, and I think that's true of a lot of maturity models in general. But looking over it, having been involved in an automation journey for the last five years, I like it. I think it's generally pretty good. So I do have a couple of things I wanted to discuss specifically, and that is the target maturity. So a lot of times, I, I recall seeing that, for example, they recommend socks not get to much capability maturity model level five because that was too rigid in process they recommended that SOC stick somewhere between three and four because that allowed them to be somewhat flexible so i i don't know I, I looked at a few of these for example the one where it was typical actions and responses maturity model level five was acting automatically at scale that is probably a bridge too far for non-tech companies Mm. Yeah, I, I don't think your average bank or your average manufacturing company is going to be comfortable with that. Well, I think yeah. that's a really good point is simply because there are five levels doesn't mean you do have to reach <laughs> level five, right? Yeah. Yeah. So depending on the size of your organization, the complexity of it, 
um, et cetera, you may say, well, actually, you know, we're comfortable at level three and we think that's as high as we really want to get to where the, where the cost in moving to level four is too high, whether it be actual financial, you know, time or whatever, you say, it's just not worth it to get to level four. Yeah. And I think that's one of the challenges with a lot of maturity models is people don't see it that way. Yeah, they're and, like, ah, oh, we got to get to five, of... five, five, five. <laughs> yep. Yep. And a lot of senior leadership also don't see it that way because five is better than four, right? So why aren't we trying to get to five? You know, they have a hard time wrapping their mind around, well, really the trade-off is not there to be that mature. Mm -hmm. That's fair. There was, a, there was another one on here that was a little weird. His typical playbook type level three was automated triage. I actually think that automating triage is harder than automating response and automating enrichment and automating a number of other things. And I wasn't hundred percent sure what he meant by automating triage. Well, I, I think, I think automating triage is absolutely possible. I think you have to think, consider what does that really mean for you? And what I would say is that automating triage means that Certain bad are automatically remediated, certain good are automatically excluded, and then the middle is then moved on to the next step. All right. And I think that's what you could automate triage, not to say that, you know, everything is going to be within the triage step is all automated and done, but just you, you drop it into the three buckets and then the middle bucket is what actually moves to the next step and everything. It, those other two ends are what is automated triage, I think. Mm. That's what I would, that's, that's what I would consider anyway. That's fair. I did notice he has automated triage and he has automated enrichment on here, but he does not have automated containment or automated mitigation or remediation at any of these levels. It is interesting. Mm. I would have put, because I would have put automated containment at like a level two or a level three, or you can use something like CrowdStrike to put something in network containment. You can pull emails, you can lock accounts. Like all those are fairly simple out of the box actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, when you when you say that, I think you could all. That's another thing where you where you would want to be a little bit flexible as well, saying perform automate. Like you you would say you'd do automated containment of seventy percent of incidents or something like that, mm -hmm. because you're going to have criteria, or I would think you should have criteria where you say we are not going to do automated containment for these reasons. You know, if this is a production level system that affects blah blah blah. Absolutely, in no circumstances will we do automated containment on that, or, or you know, something like that, where at least you have your criteria defined to say what we would do automated containment on, and say that that is what what we mean by automated containment in this space for eighty percent or whatever. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. All right. So the other only other thing on here that I saw that was kind of interesting is level one typical customizations is using the out of box playbooks. And I actually wonder how many companies use the out-of-box playbooks. Typically speaking, the out-of-the-box playbook is not going to match your process. Although I guess if you're really immature, you probably don't have a process. So just having some kind of process is better than nothing. I, I don't know. I, what I'm curious here is how many companies use the out-of-the-box playbooks versus build their own very simple custom playbook that just does enrichment. Well, when they say out-of-the-box playbook, I assume what they mean is it's out of the box playbook and then you just do a couple of configurations and that's it. You don't yeah. really change any of the flow with it. That's what they mean by no. out of the box. Not necessarily that you just plug it in and turn it on, right? Well, I mean, you can, I'm saying I only really have a lot of experience with one of these automation platforms and you can make a copy of it and you can adjust it if you want. I don't know. Yeah, because I'm thinking any, uh, what I'm, what I would think is that any out of the box playbook, you turned it on would wreak havoc. Potentially. Yeah. So, I mean, any of them, I don't think any of them would work out of the box. I don't think yeah. it's really, I don't think it's a thing. I don't, so, I don't know. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just, you, you there, there's dozens and dozens. Do, so. There's dozens and dozens of these out of the box playbooks. Like they're, they come with every, at least again, in the tool that I use, they come with every integration you turn on and everything you install. Like there's, 25 new play well that's not true there's usually like three or four new playbooks well i i can see that it, it, using an out-of-the-box playbook for the steps not mm -hmm. actually the actions that are taking place because 
the organizations that are that are on this level one journey may not have good playbooks to begin with in doing regular incident response. Hmm. So maybe just following the out-of-backs playbook that says, okay, this is basically instructing them on how you do containment, you know, and walking them through, okay, first thing you want to do is isolate the machine. Okay. That's, you know, just the steps in the playbook is what they use out of the box, not actually the playbooks themselves. If you, if you understand where I'm trying to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. In an ideal world, all these playbooks we be built out of little sub playbooks that are basically Lego blocks so you can mm -hmm. stack them together, but yep. I don't know how often that's followed. Yeah. All right. I'm done. Stick a fork in you. Please don't. That hurts. <laughs> Such a party pooper. Ah. Yes. All right. Moving on to article three, uh, cybersecurity talent shortage, what we think it is and what we're doing about it. So we're this doing comes, nothing, <laughs> obviously, because we can't fill it. So this comes to us from Venture Insecurity, and and I'm wondering if that's a play on the Venture Venture Brothers. I this is a blog that I've recently started reading. I think it's actually a venture capitalist. Yeah, sorry. I know how much you love Venture Brothers. I do. They're freaking awesome, but. The, the author of the, the article says that, the, you know, there's a shortage of cybersecurity professionals, but why is that when there's boot camps, colleges, universities, PhD programs, ISC squared has even launched a, a certified in cybersecurity entry level certification, as well as the U.S. government's national cyber workforce and education strategy. And, and he, he, he says, you know, with the real shortage is not in quantity, but in quality. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he begins the, the article with some statistics here. So uh, apparently there's over 660,000 660, open roles in cybersecurity in the United States. And that's on top of the 1.1 million people already employed in cybersecurity. Uh, it blows my mind because that means, hold on, that means that there's a third of the roles are open. That means for every person employed in cybersecurity, there's a half a role open. Yeah. That's wild. Because he says that would make the total demand almost 1.8 or around 1.8 million. Yeah. But he gives some other interesting statistics in here in to compare that 1.8 million with the with other professions. So he says there's only a million doctors in America. There's 1.3 million lawyers, which is about 1.2 million too many and there's 1.4 million accountants we're almost we're almost outnumbering the accountants um yeah. and, what's interesting too actually is that our salaries are not quite as high as those but they're kind of close as those three domains yeah like sure 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 specialized doctors like surgeons make a lot but general GP, general practitioner, doctors only make around 200000 and you can make $200,000 in cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, you're not, like if you're starting in cybersecurity, you're making under $100,000. And if you're starting off as a doctor, you're making $200,000. So there definitely, there's a difference there, but it's not a difference in order of magnitude. Like mm -hmm. cybersecurity is making almost as much as these well known the all these three professions doctors lawyers and accountants are well known as the road to upper middle class mm. so I, I actually think that that's really interesting and really good that cybersecurity folks can make almost as much as these guys and more than some of them we're in the ballpark right so according to the author getting a job in cybersecurity is notoriously hard with only a few companies willing to take on someone who doesn't already have three to five years experience and i'm not sure that's exactly accurate but some of this is the HR is the fault of HR departments who are forcing requirements and do the screening of candidates before uh, security departments get to see them. I mean, it's getting better, uh, but still, some of this is just the fact of the existence of HR because with the with the pay that they're expected to provide security professionals, they're expecting certain requirements for education, certification, et cetera before they want to agree to those kind of salary bans. Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. I think that from HR's perspective, they're looking at these salaries, which are 
like I just said, you know, it's we're not making what a doctor makes, but we're making real close. We're sometimes, and they're saying we're not like we're making some of us are making director level and vice president level levels of money. And they're looking at, oh, to be a director, you need 15 years of experience, but a malware analyst with five years experience gets the same as this director with 15 or 20 years experience. I think that's, I think that's the major heartache that HR has. Yeah. I think the, another issue with this as well is I think there's a, a, there's a, there's a pretty large problem with actually lack of interest in the field. Hmm. You know, you have people that get into cybersecurity because they hear it's an up and coming field. They'll get a degree or a certificate or whatever in it, but they have actually no real interest in the work itself. Yeah. And they think once they have that piece of paper that they're entitled to something, that it, that paper, that certificate, that degree entitles them to something, some level of pay, something, certain positions, et cetera. Uh, when they really aren't interested and don't have not worked in the field also. No, and this is something that, because I, I remember when I went to school, when I went to college in 98, there, the big thing then was the Microsoft Certified System Engineer. I think mm, that's what mm -hmm. MCSE stood for. And everybody, everybody in college was like, oh man, we got to get into IT. If you come out of here and you get your MCSE, that's a hundred thousand bucks a year straight out of college. And this was of course, 25 years ago, so a million, a hundred thousand bucks was worth more than it was now. Right. And if you're listening deep into the future, you know, I know that you're, you're like a hundred thousand dollars. Like I just bought a loaf of bread for a hundred thousand dollars, but <laughs> right. so this is not, a, and this happened to lawyers too. Actually the, the median, there are lawyers that make a whole bunch of money, but there's a lot of lawyers that only make like $50,000 a year. Mm. Yeah. I mean, after, after dealing with a, a few MCSE certified folks, <laughs> I realized that that certificate was completely worthless, <laughs> but, but it got them a hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, I certainly hope they were not getting paid that. <laughs> but the the author goes on to goes on to say, I think that with few exceptions, getting a job in cybersecurity requires people to have an understanding of the thing that they're going to secure. One cannot oh, secure it. what they don't understand. What are you talking about? Of course we can. So someone interested in doing product security shouldn't know how the product's built. You know, whoever wants to social be specialized in cloud security should understand cloud infrastructure. Uh, and someone who wants to build a career securing IT infrastructure should understand how IT is provisioned, et cetera. You are so needy. So I, I generally agree with you, but I think that the problem here is that colleges don't believe in this. Uh, although this is actually the same as you're talking about people trying to cash in on this. This is the colleges trying to cash in on this as well to provide these degrees to supposedly justify their $200,000 fees for a four-year program and then they crank out folks who don't have any of that background knowledge yeah well you know i i was this just came to me while you, while you were you were going through this is you know what i think they could might help remedy that is if it worked more like a a law degree or a, a doctor degree or medical degree where you do undergrad in some it right you do programming you do mm -hmm. infrastructure building or whatever. That's your undergraduate. Then your master's program is where you did the security part. That or, might help that as minor. well because then you learn the IT part and then you learn the security part based on what you understood in the in the in the undergraduate part from that the IT portion. I mostly like that, but I think I think for most people, going to six years of college is asking a lot. I would rather see like the major be IT or computer or uh, computer science, and then the minor be security or mm. whichever one i think i'd like that a lot because then you at least have a fairly significant background in whatever you're supposed to be securing yeah well i i kind of think that what would be would be even better though is if it worked along the same lines as like special operations in the military uh you you in general you can't sign up to go into special forces as a as a MOS when you join the military, right? You have to go in, have a certain job, do that job for a while, and you pry, apply, and then go through the courses to get into special operations. So hmm. I think we better for organizations in general if they pulled their I, their security staff almost exclusively from their IT department and then backfilled their IT department. 
and were pulling over qualified smart IT people into the security realm and then taught them, taught them security. That makes sense. But further on in the article, he goes on to say that there's an oversupply of talent in the entry level side and a shortage of talent on the senior side. And when I first read that, my first thought was, well, then we just need to wait, right? Because eventually the entry level people will yeah. become senior people. Yeah. Just wait a little longer. But uh, I think I think the way that he categorizes though is not exactly accurate because it's not so much we have a shortage of or of people on the senior side. We have a shortage of people in particular roles on the senior side. You know, application security folks, infrastructure security, you know, those particular areas, malware reverse engineering. Uh and the entry level people don't aren't all necessarily going in at the ground level in those specific security fields to mature up in those in those disciplines within cybersecurity. Yeah. I uh, yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying a minute ago where if they don't have the background and what they're trying to secure, even if they become senior simply through time, are they actually getting any better? Mm -hmm. Right. Or are they just getting more senior? What I don't think it was <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And a generalist like that usually works their way into compliance or they work their way into management. And it wasn't this article. Didn't we talk about another article the other day that maybe I just read it and we didn't talk about it, but I saw some article a couple of weeks ago that was talking about how there's a, actually a surplus of managers and compliance folks, and there's a shortage of reverse engineers, incident response, scripters, software engineers, application security folks, cloud security folks. Mm. Like it's the practitioners there's a shortage of. There's a ton of generalists that we have. We have we have all the generalists we need. Uh, it makes me think of what you were talking about with the education system where there's a three to one ratio of administrators to educators. Uh, it's so is it like thing. we have a three to one ratio now of governance and auditor or whatever to practitioners? Yeah. Man, I saw I saw somebody on Reddit today talking about CEOs and about middle management as a what did they call it? They called it like a charity program for mediocre people. That's not the exact words they use. Middle management is? Yeah. Because they don't really do much. And all they have to do is make decisions. And frequently those decisions are bad. And they have to justify those decisions. And they usually do a bad job of that. And all the layers of management are on the backs of the people doing the actual work. And that's frustrating being a free market person to fit to, to imagine that companies don't figure this out. Some do. do your favorite video game company, Valve, aren't they nearly flat? Well, they're practically anarchical based on the interview. There's a really good interview with the chief economist. It's interesting that a non-financial institution has a chief economist, but the yeah. chief economist with Valve on Econ Talk about 10 years ago. Really interesting conversation there about how Valve is structured from the inside. And there's a, and he gives an example in there where the desks in Valve, and this might be different because everyone's so much remote now, but at the time, 10 years ago, obviously it's, it's everybody was in the office, but in Valve, all the desks were on wheels. And if you want to work on a project, you would actually unplug your desk, wheel it over near someone else and plug your desk in near them and work on a project with them. And that's the way projects were decided on what was worked on is more people would start clustering around a certain project. And then that project would reach critical mass. And that's the one that would be taken to market. Apparently that's how portal was developed. This is just an idea by one guy. And then people are like, oh, that's really cool. And they started expanding, expanding that group until eventually it became, you know, one of the greatest games of all time. Yeah. Yep. I've heard that story, but yeah, that's, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not nothing else. <laughs> but he suggests, and I and I don't disagree with him in the article that engineering needs to take a, or or security needs to take a engineering approach. You know, uh, have manual processes automated by security engineers. Have detection engineers tailor detection logic to the organization. Automation engineers to create playbooks and automate manual processes, and get security engineers to to assemble things and build things within the security stack that are needed tailored to the organization. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about this. And weirdly enough, this is kind of related to the SOAR maturity matrix that we just talked about, about automating more things. 
in my kind of ideal sock model, there should be twice as many engineers as there are an- analysts because most most socks I've worked at, there's a ton of analysts because they have a ton of alerts coming in. But if you have more engineers than analysts, you can focus both on detection engineers to make higher quality detections, but also automation engineers to allow those analysts, the fewer analysts you have to do more through automation. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before. I think you're in yeah. agreement. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. So now the problem is, of course, is that all these security engineers are the ones that are in demand and we don't have. Because those are the those are the doers that we're short on. Right. Well, that and and like you were saying before, that's not what the colleges teach security people either. Yeah. They no, don't teach not. them the engineering part. So he thinks they should you should bring software engineers to do the cybersecurity. But but in the in this is something he quotes in there, which I'm not sure if this is accurate or where he got these numbers from, but he, according to him, a software engineer out of the gate will make 20 to 40% more than a security engineer out of the gate. And if you do that, how do you convince them to, rather than go into software engineering, to go into security? Yeah. We've talked about this before too, especially those FANG folks. You go look at like levels.fyi or something and they just, they get paid a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I've heard, I've actually talked to more than one person who thinks that security engineers should be paid about the same as software engineers because they have roughly similar skill sets. And generally one could be the other with some training and some time. But I haven't, I haven't been anywhere that actually believes in that. At least it doesn't pay the same. Well, I think you'd get a huge disparity in that though. You're going to have some security engineers that absolutely are on par, but yeah. I think most just aren't. No, but you hear that about software engineers too. There's there's a lot of these technology companies have gotten really bloated with software engineers that do almost nothing all day. Mm. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of those, like my day in the life of working at Google, where they wander around the campus all day and write a couple lines of code. Now I'll admit, if those couple lines of code were super impactful, that could actually be uh, a truly worthwhile to pay them to you know wander around the campus all day. But I don't know. And how to measure that. Yeah, you, yeah, you can't measure by lines of code, but they don't look—they don't look like they're thinking about problems. They're not talking about like I'm sitting here pondering how to fix this as efficiently as possible. And I've just heard lots of anecdotal stories about bad coders. So I don't know. We're getting distracted. I'm getting distracted. So what he suggests is that you know we cannot solve this problem by hiring entry level people, and we can't solve it by getting engineers to pivot from their careers into security. And I think. I'm not sure he's, I don't, I don't really agree with that because I really think that is where you get your best people from is the people who pivot into security from other IT, other IT teams. And this is where I've actually seen the best people come from also. And schools are pumping out IT people more than they're pumping out security people. So if we steal from them, uh, I think that's a better way to go. And, and once they've been in IT, they've been in the trenches, they understand how IT works. And then you just bring them over and teach them security. I think that's easier. I agree. But he thinks what we need to do is upskill those who are already working in cybersecurity. And I have a hard time thinking that that is scalable because that is ridiculously time and dollar expensive to do. I know it is, but I feel like we have to. Well, the thing, and maybe, maybe we do, but then that's where you come in to say the business needs to make a trade-off to say, I'm going to buy less tools or whatever, we're going to spend more money on training and education. And the, the business is going to, the reason you're going to have a hard time convincing businesses of that is if you buy a tool, you, you own a tool. If you Mm -hmm. upskill an engineer and they quit, then you, all that money is lost to that company. Mm -hmm. That's the business mindset on that. Yeah. I think that's part of why we get, so part of the problem is we've got all these entry-level folks coming in who don't know what they're protecting and they're not really getting any better because the companies aren't investing in them. And then they leave and go somewhere else where they don't get any better and nobody invests in them. And then they leave and go somewhere else where they don't get any better and nobody invests in them. And we're, we're almost creating the problem for ourselves. Well, I think maybe we, maybe possible solution to this is more along the lines of uh, actual contracts, multi-year contracts. So 
You want to hire an entry-level person. You hire, okay, you're going to come on board. You have a three-year contract minimum. So they come out, you sign them up. They come on your company and you're like, okay, we need this skill set. So you're going over and you're going to work in IT for a year. Yeah. Doing nothing but that skill set, program, whether it be programming or infrastructure or whatever. You're going to do that for a year. And then you're going to come over to the security team and you're going to spend a year learning security. And then you're going to be productive for a year before your contract's out. That, that actually might not be too bad. I mean, I think some have similar stuff right now where you can, uh, you have to pay it back. I don't know how much they pursue that. Where like mm -hmm. they'll pay for the training, but if you leave after a year, you pay it back. And I think you can get some of this through intern programs mm -hmm. yeah, as well. But there's something else I want to mention here that he brought up in, in the article that I thought was a, a really good idea, but I'm not sure if you'll get, you're going to get folks to invest in this. But, quote, security vendors need to help solve the security talent shortage by making their tools accessible to practitioners who aren't working in large enterprises. The need to qualify to meet the minimum spend and other restrictions make it impossible for many in the industry to try different products. End quote. I don't see how this relates. But what he's saying is you, you right now sitting at home, you don't have access to an enterprise MDE deployment to understand how MDE works. Right, but he's suggesting fair. that security vendors like Microsoft would, would allow people who aren't part of an organization to have enterprise level access to security tools to understand how they work at an enterprise level. All right. I can kind of understand that. I can kind of understand that. Because sure, maybe you can get a, 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 a copy of some tool and install it on your local machine. And that may or may not give you some level of understanding for that tool, but it's certainly not going to give you for an understanding of that tool at enterprise scale. Yeah. But that's a fair amount of expense also for a software, a vendor to provide that infrastructure for people to get access to. That makes sense. And he talks a lot about software engineers and equating this to software engineering. I actually think that it would be more, it's more beneficial to have infrastructure and site reliability engineers brought on. I mean, SRE folks know scripting, they understand CDC pipelines, API integrations. I think that would be huge hugely beneficial to security and infrastructure folks. They understand the plumbing of the IT organization, how AD works, you know, how the network works and how to break it and how to get around in it, as well as how to get around the controls that are present in the infrastructure. So I think actually those two groups, I, I would say are more important than software engineers or would be more important or more beneficial to security than software engineers. I think that makes some sense. So we're going to do this last article. Right. We've yeah. been on for almost what, I know. close it's, to an it's, hour. Or like 40 some minutes. Okay. All right. We'll talk through this. All right. For our last article, this is one that we wanted to talk about last week. I, should, I really should have dropped the sore one and just talked about this, but it's fine. So this is a article from Anton, Chivak Anton Chivakin about an ongoing series of detection engineering. I'm not going to cover This is part five. We're not talking about all five, but... I've been thinking a lot about Thread Intel lately, and I had not been able to really put into words why I didn't like Thread Intel. You've probably heard me talking about I don't believe in Thread Intel. Thread Intel is not worth it, blah, blah, blah. But he actually put into words exactly how I felt about it. And I'm grateful to him for that. We'd originally planned on doing an entire episode around Thread Intel AI. But we talked to the few vendors and it turns out their AIs are not quite ready for prime time yet. Surprise. Yeah. All right. So according to the threat detection, I'm sorry, according to the detection engineering maturity model, threat intel is used by detection engineering teams that manage and optimized. Uh, defined, he doesn't include CTI at this level, but from my perspective, I'd say that yes, they use threat intel at that level, but it's a IOC feeds mostly. They're not really digesting it. They're just feeding it. Uh, managed, he says, known threats are used to prioritize content development in a vague manner. And this is probably, you know, your detection engineer saw this article just posted that says, this new ransomware group is doing this new thing. 
and then optimized. Content development is driven by the threat intelligence teams who have identified known and active threats that are targeting your organization. And that sounds like a flipping utopia. <laughs> Anyways, all right. So biggest issue with threat intel for content engineering, for detection engineering. So detection engineering is asking the threat intel team what to focus on. And the threat intel team is giving them high level items such as attack techniques. So we've talked about this in the past, but the majority of attackers use the same attack techniques. So this is frequently not very helpful. And any given attack technique, so one of the attack techniques is command and script command line or scripting interpreter and PowerShell. Like you could probably write 150 rules for just the attack technique of PowerShell. So while it's you kind of useful to know that the attacker uses PowerShell, it's not very helpful for trying to actually write content based on that. So he has a list of bad threat intel practices. Number one, delivering a list of attack techniques. It takes weeks to develop into content. Only the really commonly well-known ones will be covered and they will typically be very general rules because it'll be like, oh, hidden window used in this PowerShell command. Turns out that happens all the flipping time. So this will lead to high po false positive rates. Uh, very generic intel, not specific enough. Uh, what the content or development engineering, I'm sorry, detection engineering. This is kind of a new term for me. Still working my way through it. They want extremely specific information on what the attackers did. And that, that actually, that, that's one of the things that I'm trying to work my way through right now is there's a, there's a spectrum here. On one side of the spectrum, you have very few rules, but they're kind of broad and they detect uh, a bunch of behavior. So on that side, you might have a rule that triggers when somebody runs an encoded PowerShell command. Encoded PowerShell commands are used by a lot of attackers. They're also used by a surprising number of benign vendors who are trying to hide the PowerShell code they're running. David, have you ever run a query for encoded PowerShell commands in your environment? Uh, I have not, no. You should try it. We, I for sure, like four or five years ago, I, I saw this randomly and I was like, oh, why don't we have a rule for that? We should have a rule for that. And I did a little exploratory hunting and I was shocked. There were hundreds and hundreds of encoded PowerShell commands. And I was like, oh my God, we are thoroughly, totally. And then I would decode them in CyberChef and it was legitimate stuff. I have no idea why the vendor chose to encode it, but it was ridiculous. Now, on the other end of that, you can make a very specific rule where it's an encoded command and it's a hidden window and the attacker tends to run scripts out of this specific directory, but that'll only fire if that specific attacker is in your environment and they don't change their TTPs. So there's a spectrum there and you're not supposed to get too far on either end. Too much information is another bad practice. Big, long thread intel reports that are 90 plus pages are not terribly helpful because then somebody's got to sit down and read 90 plus pages and try to digest and determine what content can be created from it. Hey, you run through an AI that's going to spit that out for you. <laughs> I tried that. I couldn't get it to give me the detail. The AI was very good at giving me high level bullet points, but I couldn't give it to get it to like die. That's something that I've been thinking about doing with the GPT. You can create your own GPT now. I've been thinking about trying to get a GPT to digest threat intel reports into actual actionable content chunks. I don't know. Next bad practice, a lack of variety. There's tons and tons of reports around Windows and Office 365. There's not as many around SaaS, specific clouds like Google Cloud, et cetera. Uh, no value add. A lot of threat intel teams just copy stuff off the feed and forward it to the rest of the team. Not helpful. And slow. We see this a lot. By the time you get the report, the attacker, this, this occurred back in, you know, six months ago, nine months ago, and they've already moved on to a new methodology. So if the detection engineering team builds content based off the report, they're too late. So what threat into what detection engineering needs from threat Intel, he actually put together kind of a, a mental model of almost a ticketing system or a knowledge base of what they want. So they want threat Intel to populate this knowledge base with well-described knowledge items that can each lead to a piece of content. Each of these knowledge items would be tagged so you could search it. 
you know, maybe by attacker, maybe by methodology, the attack techniques would be a good tag. The life cycle, attack life cycle would be a good tag. Each one of them would be tracked as issues in project management software so that they can be stuck in a backlog of detections that are prioritized. And each of those knowledge items will be focused on a single threat. They will be specific to a technology, a protocol, or an operating system. The impact would be evaluated. They would be uniquely described. They would all be relevant to the organization. So none of this, none of this like, oh, here's a really incredibly piece of content for Mac OS. We don't use Mac OS. They'd be shortened to the point and they'd be delivered in a timely manner because creating a detection out of a piece of the, one of these pieces of content might take two or three weeks. So if Threat Intel doesn't get them to you till a couple months after they're used, then it takes a month for detection engineering to roll them out. They are no longer useful. So, and this is, this is specifically why I don't like Threat Intel. Most Threat Intel seems to consist of reports that are prioritized for decision makers and strategic at the strategic level. Although honestly, I don't think they even do a good job of that because I don't think they give the right kind of information to actually make a strategic decision off of. They are not prioritized or configured for detection engineering teams to write content on. So IOC feeds and long form reports, not good for detection engineering. And that's what I care about the most. So that's why when I see uh, Threat Intel, I get unhappy. Well, I mean, that's the so what, right? You know, what's the point of generating Threat Intel unless you're going to have some kind of action that's going to mitigate uh, a threat or a risk? Yep. Yep. And there's, and there's, I mean, that's the two audiences for Threat Intel, right? There's the strategic audience and then there's the tactical audience. Seems like everybody's really focused on the strategic side. And I've seen this a lot myself where uh, a VP really wants to have a threat intel plan and they set up the threat intel plan to feed them for whatever reason. Well, that's all the articles we have for today. So thank you for joining us and follow us. So you can get a sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.